death sentence for this week. And here's some literary news. We could have covered this last week, but just didn't, because wrestling. But um, it's NaNoWriMo month, November. Uh, that means lots of people are going to be writing novels, and next m- month, um, agents just aren't going to be reading them. Yeah, that's going to be uh, the the wheel ever turns. Yeah, you've made a some an intern who for some reason is doing their internship in December. Their job is just that little bit worse now. They're gonna they get a whiff of it of like how this book came to be immediately slushed. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah I don't want. I know that from experience, having uh, having handed in uh, NaNoWriMo material to someone and gotten the most polite letter asking me to never do that again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was like nineteen, so I, I I don't nineteen or twenty, so I don't feel too bad about that. And they were they're very kind when they were like. You, you may feel it's it's nice to have written a whole book in one month, but to everyone else, that's a sign of how much effort you put into it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, like, do, like, fine if you want to write stuff in one month, but, like, then maybe revise it for another month. Yeah, exactly. And there's, don't, like... Don't go nuts. No. Projects, projects come up in all kinds of different ways, and there's also a lot of, um... Writing is very much, uh, like all arts, are a a craft as much as anything else. So that means that you just have to do it a whole bunch. And maybe cranking out 50,000 words in a month is a way to do some of it. But, like, be honest with yourself. Look at that book. Would you ask someone to read it? Would you ask someone to pay money to read it? (laughs) Yeah, so NaNoWriMo. Um, Maybe not the best idea, but, you know, go off. Whatever. Uh, in rock news, uh, Fretin, that guy. Oh my god, I was I was regaling my partner with that last night. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I, I don't know how someone... Okay, so background, a guy whose second name is Fretin, like... With an I, Fretin. Yeah. yeah, not Fretin, Fretin, um, plays some, like... I don't even know what you'd call that music at this point. It's not like glam rock. It's not uh, just lame hard rock guitar noodling. It's just awful. And um, he booked a European tour, uh, but he had no audience for it. He um, bought his... Literally none. Yeah. Like (laughs) the audiences for his... Shows in Bristol and Manchester were free people who were the support band's friends. He <laughs> told promoters that he had sold out tickets to these places. They believed him. And now um, he's the biggest joke in music. The, the best part about all of this. So, so he was able to do this because he made up a fake persona um, and then made a ton. Like... He's been deleting them, but they're being hosted in other places, so I highly encourage people to track them down while they're still around. Made a ton of fake YouTube videos of, like, crowd footage of him playing, and it's a big, sold-out crowd, or footage of him, and it's this roar of a crowd, all of which is fake. He's just, like, deftly edited all this stuff. He had a series of interview videos where there's 
clearly no one off screen. It's clearly him saying questions into a microphone without a camera, and then him on the camera responding to them. All to make it, and then would, like, buy clicks and views for the videos um, in order to make it look like also people were watching it a whole bunch. Did the exact same thing with, uh, like, Facebook likes and stuff like that. Um, and, like, bought uh, automated uh, responses. All to make it look like his band was really big, which... Some people do in order to, like, crack algorithms because it's, like, if you have below a certain threshold of likes, you just won't show up on people's radars. So it's – there's a lot that can be said about how algorithm forces some shit like this to to exist again. But he uses all of this to email people in Europe. It's very important to know that he's on the west coast of America. He's picked a place where they have no geographical way to double-check anything. It's very clearly deliberate. Hmm. Emails them and is like, oh, yeah, I'm so big. Or my client is so big. Not me. No, my client. We are not the same, man. Uh, here's some stats. And they, they take it at face value. Um, they wind up booking him. Uh, he winds up saying, like, yeah, my promoter couldn't make it over. He's staying in Hollywood. Now, this is a weird red flag because, like... A promoter or tour manager's job is to go to venues and make sure that everything is going according. Like, oh, did you get everything from the rider set up? You know, where's where's the back line going to be plugged in? Like, just normal, boring day-to-day stuff. And he's like, oh, he couldn't make it. He's mm. he's on the other side of the planet. Totally normal. Um, uh, when the venues get a whiff that literal while watching uh, opening bands and checking their own ticket counters that literally no tickets have been sold. Apparently the first guy shook him down and was like, okay, you can't, uh, you can play, but you have to pay the, um, basically the minimum return on investment cost. <laughs> and he was like, now he winds up grumbling and then he fucking does it. Like he goes to a bank, <laughs> withdraws enough money at that point, he's basically just renting the venue for a private party, but the private party he's throwing is, I'm going to play in a band. Even better, it's a one-man band, so he hired British uh, musicians to play as his backing band. So he's shelling out money to rent out venues and to pay people to play to absolutely nobody. An email, two email chains get sent out. One where support bands for this guy's tour wind up looping in each other and they're like, yo, don't expect to get any money, but definitely shake him down. He'll pay you <laughs> if you tell him that he has to. And then venue owners doing the same thing where they're like, hey, uh, this guy has sold zero tickets. So, um, just yell at him a whole bunch and he'll just rent your venue and you can just watch this guy with his hired band. Yeah, he's like, and then he, he did the whole tour like that. He didn't cancel any show. And he's still going. He's he's out of Britain now. He's into Europe. And playing these like weird like fifth largest city in Belgium places and he doesn't even like book places in like Bruges or somewhere. He books these like weird little cities. And yeah, he's just got this like infinite Tommy Wiseau money and I don't, I don't know. I really want to know what go, is going through this guy's head. It's so 
such a beautiful mystery. Everyone's getting paid off of this guy, too. Like, I saw some really angry comments about how he's hurting the scene and hurting venues. And it's like, no, everyone's making money. Yeah, it's pretty. <laughs> they're probably making more money because they don't have to hire, like, the, the bar staff don't have to work. No one has to do anything. <laughs> yeah, this guy turns it. up. He, he pretends he does a little karaoke of his own songs. And it leaves, and you get a check. <laughs> They're like, yo, you're going to have to clock out, because we are not going to be making any money. But you can stay if you want. <laughs> you can watch this guy. <laughs> this is, yeah. So, Fretton, everybody. Uh, if he's, yeah, if we've got any German fans, then he's going to be in your neighborhood pretty soon. Uh, maybe he'll, like, go viral in Germany now. Because, I mean, A, you know, Germans aren't exactly famous for their love of great music um, you know since mozart anyway but uh b he's like <laughs> wow he's like, pro- <laughs> <laughs> okay wagner whatever but um and b um yeah he's he's like pre-viral at this moment i'm sure people would want to go down just to know about it like if someone had like if i hadn't known about this before he played manchester i pro- probably would have gone down just to I, could probably get, I highly, get a I voice be- story out of it or something I want to be very clear. I highly encourage no one to go to these shows because we need to make him complete the zero attendance tour. <laughs> okay. I'm Maybe very curious. We must use our incredible discipline to make this man finish the tour with no attendees and then we can check him out. Okay, <laughs> fine. Okay, agreed. No one goes to threatened. <laughs> he has to 0% his tour. It's... If he can complete a zero percent run, I will. I will make myself like his music honestly. Yeah, it, it, it's like a a run of Dark Souls where you pick up no weapons and you're new to the whole time, <laughs> and you just punch everyone to death. He has to do it's that. Like, like this is straight up the most impressive thing I've ever heard. Yeah, he make Fretta do this. <laughs> Yeah. This is his penance. He will become a he- right now. He's a fool, but if he does this, he'll become a hero. <laughs> yeah. So that's... legendary hero threaten. Yeah. So that's threaten everybody, and uh, there's new music out this week. Which I-, I had a hard time picking music for this episode because there's some actual good stuff coming out. Uh, so I just want to highlight. Sai uh, have a new album out. Incredible Japanese weirdo black metal avant garde progress. Yeah, if it, you haven't heard of them, check them yeah. out. They're, they're amazing. Execution, whatever, is my favorite record by them. I don't remember its full name. It has yeah. Execution on the title. I first heard them when I was like 14 on some like Kerrang! magazine compilation. I was like, music is not like this. What is anyone talking about? What is this? <laughs> but uh, Sire, incredible. Um, Bloodbath uh, released stuff. Uh, the Good Shining, not the Bad Shining jazz one not the racism one um, the new the new shining record is just nine inch nails cock rock it's really, really? tight oh yeah. right. okay okay yeah they, they okay. drop the jazz entirely it's just like amped up nine inch nails cock rock which is fun like it's it's just beer and party music nice yeah okay so yeah check those those ones out as well but we'll be playing some like actual music pretty soon but uh we want to get into the book this morning uh, oh wait, no, no, no! I, I have a oh, thing. Oh yes, so, you have a thing. Yeah, you have a thing. So I actually have a book coming out. Oh boy, um, it's called Pyramid Head Black, and no, it is not named after the Silent Hill character. 
yes, I legitimately forgot that was a thing somehow <laughs> when I titled it. Just, okay. just getting that out of the way. Just um, forced through with that title. You kind of stuck to it. Yeah, yeah, no, I was like, I'm 20 chapters into a 36-chapter thing, and I've been serializing it online, so I I, I kind of have to, I just got to keep going. Um, okay. Take your lumps. Um, but, yeah, so it's out through a, a Lemniscate Small Press, which, um, a small press uh, run out of Canada. Um, so you can find it at lemniscatesmallpress.ticktail.com. Um We'll probably have something in the uh, the description because I'll mm-hmm. send a link over to Gareth. Yep, um, has it's uh, in a combination of uh, conspiracy theory stuff, um, post cyberpunk, uh, esoteric theology, um, neurodivergence. Uh, there's a lot of Borgesian stuff in it because I just have a huge nut for Borges. Um, and there's some really awesome illustrations by a friend of mine named uh, Graham. From uh, from Scotland, who just does incredible uh, occult work, and got some really excellent illustrations from him to uh, that are paired with it. It's not like it's not like an illustrated novel. It's like a novel that comes with illustrations that sort of visually represent some of the stuff going on in the book. Kind of like in, um, in Sisyphean, where every fifty pages or so there'd be a picture of something. Yeah, exactly, um, and it's. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, it's um, ten bucks Canadian. Uh, translates to like a little over seven uh, dollars in in pounds. That's probably a third of one pound because your money is funny ass valuable. Um, it's around uh, four pound fifty. So yeah, yeah, go go check that out. Um, we're doing pre orders right now. Should ship in mid November, um, and then after that it'll be a normal um, uh, normal object available check out my book yeah damn right you should if you um, don't i'll feel really sad yeah and you you want that do you want that listener is that a thing that it, it, are you okay with this you're gonna make if, someone sad if you want to do that then here's an easy path to do it don't get my book uh if you don't want to make me sad me personally me langdon sad yeah, a human being who's just got just as much right to be happy as anyone else it's if you're in Britain, it's less than five pounds. Yeah. You got five pounds, you can find that. Just on the road. This is like a, a latte. This is like latte money we're talking here. Starbucks, Spend. not like uh, not like Costa or ne- Cafe Nero. It's like primo Spend. latte money. But still Spend latte money. One, one latte. Get my book. Yeah. That's my pitch. Yeah. It's sci-fi. You do. It's very vaporwave as well. <laughs> Yeah, and there needs to be more vaporwave in fiction, and that's yeah, what we want to promote on this show is the vaporwave. We just want like Finnegan's to... Wake can't be the only one. Yeah, I just want some to novelize. Um... Oh crap! I've totally forgotten what it was. Macintosh Plus. No, did the, the, the anime about the uh, Google Thirteen. Oh. The the movie that was in the eighties with the terrible computer yeah. graphics and yeah. Just want the novelization of that, please. So, but... but I'm actually I'm currently serializing the second in the Pyramid Head arc called Pyramid Head White. Um, it's about halfway through. That one's a lot bigger and a lot more politically oriented. And then I plan on finishing it out with Pyramid Head Pink, which will be um, 
a combination of psychedelic body horror and uh, like crazy psychedelic fantasy and stuff like that. So nice, and that's what we want. So yep. And speaking of body horror, kind of, not really, a little bit, maybe. Uh, Jenny Haval's Paradise Rot, uh, which we have read this week, which I read in like three hours. I was really impressed with myself. Yeah. I kind of never rhyme mode my way through this book. I tore through it. I, I kept looking at the page number and I was like, man, I wonder how far I'm, I am, I'm on page 110. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's a short book too. It's it's a little less than two hundred pages. So yeah, and big type as well. I think if they use regular yeah. type, it would be around ninety pages. Um, so it's by Jenny Havel. Um, she, if you know her, you probably know her as a musician. She's a a really incredibly talented, very intense uh, avant garde kind of avant pop musician, kind of in the mold of Bjork or. Um, who am I thinking of? Who else? Uh, uh, Bjork and... Uh, there's a little bit of PJ Harvey in there. There's a mm-hmm. little bit of... Um, uh, Laurie Anderson, maybe? Yeah, I, I could definitely see some Laurie Anderson. That's part of that. She's very foundational for that. Um, yeah, her big uh, her big record that got a lot of buzz initially was Apocalypse Girl, and then the one that really broke was Blood Bitch, um, which is just a fucking phenomenal record. Both yeah, of those are really great, but Blood Bitch... That today. Yeah, Blood Bitch is... If you're into metal, you'll probably be into this, because it's um, very heavily informed by... Uh, Jenny Val is Norwegian. It's very heavily informed by second-wave black metal. Dark Throne has a big influence on it. You're not going like, to a... hear that a super amount, but it's it's there. And it's also a, a concept album about vampires. So Yeah. And uh, she, she I saw her on tour with Swans, who that'll be the only time I mention that group. Uh, <laughs> but uh, absolutely incredible live, too. Just phenomenal musician. She also put out a record with a jazz orchestra, which mm, is yeah. really good. Not a lot of people have heard. It's called In the End, His Voice Will Be the Sound of Paper. Just, again, sort of a testament to how, how varied her her skills are yeah and music's on sacred bones records which always puts out incredible stuff uh but yeah she so in 2008 she wrote uh a book called pearl briggerite uh which translates as pearl brewery uh she wrote it initially in english then in norwegian came out in norway she got she kind of got big as a musician with her first um, few albums there uh, she was initially recording as rocket to the sky or one word which wasn't too cool and then uh, she was just jfl and she her writing took a back burner while she focused on being a really incredible musician uh, and but now uh, verso press of all people have come out with a novelization the english translation of it and verso if you know is the it's like the left-wing uh, publisher in the world right now. The, the yeah, number one by very far. Yeah, it's enormously acclaimed, very rightfully so. We've read other stuff from them on yeah. here. Like uh, uh, Against Creativity was by them. Yeah. Uh, I've pretty much like... I'm sure I'm going to wear out my welcome with their PR guy because... Um, <laughs> we email them a lot. <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, Ali, if you're listening... Um, Dude, you're you're all right. Um, 
I, I owe you maybe put tricks. out maybe put out worse books if you if you don't want this many emails yeah, just, just look into look out, into worse material yeah, less books and worse that that's my tip um we gotta be yeah i i probably could just do a verso podcast at this point because uh there was other stuff like um revolting prostitutes is like really blowing up in like leftist sex positive circles uh, there's a book called the uh, Zeno Feminist Manifesto, which looked incredible. Um, yeah, that one. That one is. Uh, that I think that's a reprint of something that had been um, on online for a while. Um, oh, cool. But Maybe I'll just yeah, that. So it's it's a really really. If it's the same one I'm thinking of, but yeah, it's a really fantastic. They have a really excellent book on Afrocentrism. Um, yeah, I think that's it's called just called Afrocentrism, right? Right. Yep. 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 I'm looking at it right now. They've, They've put out stuff by like Karl Marx, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and Tom, Thomas More. Uh, they they have they're not they have done fiction before. There is um, it's generally the newer stuff is uh, translated fiction, um, stuff that's pretty obscure. I I literally haven't heard of anything any of these writers except Jenny Haval and you know, Thomas More and. Uh, Walter Benjamin, yeah, kind of heard of him, uh, and uh, Terry Kelly, who is the um, main publisher of Verso Books, has put out a lot of his fiction on his on the um, thing. But uh, so it's a weird thing to get Verso to to put out fiction, but it's a really good thing because they've obviously got an eye for it, and maybe we'll see more of that in future because uh, Jenny Haval, because of her. Um, profile as a musician is probably a, a bigger name for for them than their previous stuff they put out they actually they put out a, a book by they've actually put out a ton of books apparently by john berger who um british people will know john berger because he had he's had a series of shows on bbc that were just enormously influential about um interrogating art um but yeah i mean all of that's on youtube by the way and it's mm. well worth watching brilliant guy mm. um I've just taken that opportunity to push my man, John Burke. <laughs> I'm going to take this opportunity to point out that uh, another BBC documentarian who's awesome, Adam Curtis, his voice was sampled on Blood Bitch by Jenny Havel. There we go. Now everything, we're back. Everything comes full circle. So uh, Paradise Rot is about a young uh, Norwegian woman named Jo. She moves uh, to this like minor city in Australia to go to college there to study biology. Uh, she gets a house, uh, a flat uh, house share with a young woman named Carol. Uh, the house is a brewery. Uh, it was a brewery at one point. And uh, there's no walls. They're kind of the walls there are like this clapboard thing. Uh, there's no privacy. You can hear everything. And, um, on its very basic level, it's a it's a it's a nice uh, kind of queer coming of age story. Yeah, it's a lot of it. If you you could edit this quite easily and get a very simple coming of age story out of it, but uh, then she she doesn't go full on magic realism or body horror. I've 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 seen this described as like psychological horror by one reviewer which is insane it's not horror at all it's a it's a, no it's it's, it's very 
yeah it's a, yeah it's a true it's romance very, book yeah it's very joyous um it's abstract and surreal but it's very very joyful um yeah i think there's a lot of things in it that i think would disgust normal people and i think she's she presses on those um uh tacks uh a great deal like there's there's the joke about you can tell someone's first literary fiction story because they they have a weird fixation on describing people in the bathroom. Um, <laughs> and that definitely comes in here. Yeah, uh, but, it, but there's a reason for it. it yeah, yeah. Uh, it She does eventually weave it into... Uh, and it, it ties into elements of Blood Bitch, which is as much about menstruation as it is about vampires. And part yeah. of that embrace of parts of the body or uh, parts of process that we may view as disgusting but are just as normal as sleeping um yeah which has been a cool like subtrend in feminist fiction yeah There's stuff like um uh, was it wetlands by charlotte roche which is another translated uh, european book that yeah. was, came up was really big years ago it was it's it is that goes way way harder and is truly disgusting but oh it, yeah, it was a a very good really statement. Really good book. Oh yeah, yeah, it's very very good, and um, but it was a great statement just to have you know, women who are obviously like put on pedestals, who are always presented to us in these very like shaved and waxed way, what uh, you know to have them get hemorrhoids sometimes, you know, be gross and have secretions and smell and do gross things with avocado pits as i recall but um, <laughs> yeah and jenny Cavall's book doesn't go full-on wetlands but it's it's very very sensuous in that way that means of the sense is not sexual although it's, yeah. it's obviously sexual as well like uh joe's senses seem to like suddenly turn the volume up way too much and she can hear like um, Carol brushing her her hair in the next room. It's like her senses just suddenly get turned up all the way up to eleven at just random times. Well, probably not random, but uh, it's um, yeah, it's very sensual, sensuous. It's it's all about the senses, and there's a lot of descriptions of smells, colors, sounds, everything seems at sometimes like, like like an amateurish kind of first year creative writing student affectation of just like try and describe everything leave nothing to the reader's imagination but um it, it ends up working because it 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 unites really well with the themes and uh it uh it, it has a it has a sensation to it that um so it it does err sometimes on the side of like early writing from someone, um, but it it achieves a kind of sense of archive I think that I found quite satisfying, um, especially because it doesn't if if you want to describe literally everything in a room, there's a handful of ways you can do it and not have it feel cheap. One is to achieve like a total archive, which. Um, Again, going back to my boy, uh, Borges has a couple of stories about that where, and Italo Calvino as well, where it's just like long sheets of data and it's meant to be 
it's meant to be overwhelming, not to be read. This skews much more in the other direction, where everything sort of blurs one thought or one sense into another. And she also wisely brackets a lot of her prose into... Um, there are larger chapters, but the chapters are relatively short. Um, and the chapters themselves are broken up into these passages, some of which, a lot of which are only like one paragraph, or some are like just a couple paragraphs. So we get, uh, it reminds me a lot of interludes in, in records as she allows herself to get dreamy for a bit and then get, you know, back to, uh, dialogue or something like that. There's also very little fixation in the book um, with forward momentum of what you would consider really plot. It isn't a very event-driven book. It's As you were saying, it's, it's much more sense-driven. Events do happen, but they're so dialed back that it takes a bit before you realize, like, oh, I'm actually in the midst of this growing romance between two people. Um yeah, there's like a, there's a, a love triangle. There's, um, it, it's like many romances where there's an obvious right partner, there's an obvious wrong partner, and even you know it's it's a work like in wrestling that you know that uh, Joe's going to end up with the right partner, she's going to reject the wrong partner, uh, but it's it's just great getting to that point. And it as as a romance it telegraphs itself by having um the characters uh, carol read a trashy romance novel as it kind of winks and winks to the audience that uh it's romance adjacent but it's going to do fun it's going to do interesting stuff with that because yeah it is and yeah. uh, then joe I ends up reading that book and um there's like a stain on the page which is significant and it's I, uh, I I quite liked how, um, and it doesn't surprise me that someone like Jenny Fall would uh, would do this. Um, the way that she nodded to uh, to what we consider low art or pulp art, and just how that incorporated itself into the life of her characters, and she significantly has the person who brings the book into the home as someone who studied literature and feels a kind of remorse for having neglected weightier tomes for you know for pulp and then has an outsider the main character um or at least the point of view character tell her like no it's you know we you, you read what moves you and that's hmm. that's the role of art it's not you know if big books move you then that's the right art if, if it's pulp then the pulp is the right art yeah. um and then incorporates it into this very literary romance like it doesn't feel she doesn't play up like, oh, and it's taboo because it's a shit book. Uh, instead, it's like, no, it's it's important to their lives, and that makes it an important book. Um, yeah. And uh, they, they watch Charmed together. I mean, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that not only dates it quite well, it it really works. Like, <laughs> But uh, I think they've remade Charmed, by the way. Um, they have. It's <laughs> The remake is... The original isn't great, but had that kind of... I don't want to say pulpy charm to it because it's called charmed, but yeah, uh, the the new one feels very much in the vogue of like they're trying to rebuild the memory of charmed and not the body of charmed. Yeah. Same with like the Heather's remake, where it's like you don't did you watch Heather's? Like <laughs> do you know what you're remaking? Yeah, did, you 
That's you can't motto, make right? the Heathers diverse. They're the bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, Sabrina and Teenage Witch is apparently very good. Uh, yeah, I, I think we're they, off topic. Maybe um, a little bit. No, uh, um, but. Yeah, it's I, I, one of the things that I like quite a bit about this book that I think touches on an aspect of literary fiction that some people have difficulty with when making the transition um, from more genre-oriented stuff. And I say that with a comic book right next to me. I just had a $150 comic book run. Um, I We both actually still read plenty of genre and plenty of poem mm, stuff. Yeah. It's just I, it's a different, different kind of thing. I'm tired today oh. because I sp- I was up last night watching Castlevania on Netflix. Season two is lit. It's oh, it's not, so I'm not good. Sure it's, I'm not sure if it's good actually, but oh, it's no, super it it's, lit. Oh, it yeah, it no, I think it's genuinely a good show. I I, I, I will think... lap up anything Warren Ellis does. I mm. I have a soft spot in my brain. For... I, I don't know. I used to love like Transmetropolitan and stuff, but then I just he just kept leaning on his. Like his his yeah. very his very Warren Ellisy way of writing stuff, but Castlevania is nothing like that. Even though the um, main characters are much any nothing like that. <laughs> yeah, okay. The, the the Trevor Belmont is just another Warren Ellis standard, as they all are. But um, yeah, Castlevania There's way more Draculas in this yeah. one. Way more. So many Draculas. Armies Dracula. of Dra- There's like an army of Draculas fighting another army of Draculas at one point. It's so lit. Also, yeah. the way they reveal him finding Vampire Killer, I just lost my cool. Yeah. It's, uh... But, yeah, I haven't so, played any of the games, so I, didn't even, I probably didn't see that bit. But, um, oh, I got, I, got, I got Castlevania Requiem, because that had Symphony of the Night in it, and I 200 percented it for, like, the 20th time. I just... I, yeah, I... But, on to my point about Paradise Rot, uh, I can go on about Castlevania all mm-hmm. fucking day. Um... This tends to be uh, a bit more of a sense compendium than, say, like an event-driven book. And that, that's actually relatively common in, in literary space, that eventfulness is, in its worst form, that's the thing that's derided in literary space, is like, oh, you're fixated on things happening to people and people doing things. Um, but at its best, it's a way to highlight other things, is that our day is not entirely driven by the direct agency of choices we make and events that happen to us. Sometimes we fall into feeling and into reminiscence and into um, memory and uh, things like that. Uh, and this this book skews much more heavily in that direction, that each... Um, that's also sort of the bleed space between poetry and literature, that... Uh, in certain creative writing workshops, you can get knocked for writing stuff that feels a bit too much like a prose poem than, you know, an event-driven story. And that's typically at least a a sign that your gut is pointing in the literary fiction direction, which it's just another direction to go. It's not better or worse. But um, this this book felt very much like that, whereas each passage felt more like a, especially with her senses turned up so high, like the little micro poem about, you know, the sound of cars outside of an old brewery, uh, or um, there's one point where she fixates on scent uh, of of things around her. Um, there's large passages that fixate on, like uh, 
the opening of the chapter, The Honey Mushroom, um, which is a beautiful title, uh, uh, fixates a lot on color and the juxtaposition uh, and plurality of color in day-to-day life that sometimes we, we take for an exceptional amount of grant, uh, we take for granted by an exceptional amount because it's just, you know, where we are every single day. Um, but then having this outsider mark, like, you know, even the most boring place is like riddled with like swaths of color. Um, and it's, it, it can take a little bit of a shift if, if you're used to more like, uh, and then Batman punches the Joker in the dick, uh, kind of, kind of storytelling, um, to then get to something that's more about, um, floating in a feeling or drifting. Like, she doesn't feel, Jenny Cavall in the book doesn't, rarely feels a desire to point it somewhere or to make things go someplace. She's very content to let characters sit and feel and experience in a space. And most of her chapter edits seem to come with like, and I think I've exhausted all I can say about this feeling, so we're just going to call it a close. Um, which is which is a benefit of how brief a lot of the passages or, um, or chapters are, is that uh, you don't, as much as everyone in literary space is forced uh, to respect Proust, um, she doesn't fall into 80 pages of talking about Madeleines or something like that. Um, it's a lot more contained. It, it feels a lot more poetic in its construction. Yeah, it, it's very, like we like we said when we started, it's beautifully short. It just flows through you just like air. It's really, yeah. really tightly done. So, um, yeah, I think I'd love to see more prose from her. Like, apparently, this she is has, like yeah. a little uh, over ten years old. I don't. She has she apparently write... um, just come come out with a new book in Norwegian, so that will hopefully get translated into English uh, a lot quicker this time around. Won't, one would guess that years. one would guess that this being published by Verso is like a slight nod of them saying like okay, we formed a relationship with her and we're going to put out her old book while we wait for the mm. translation of the new book to go on. At least that's what I would guess. Yeah. Yeah, very much. Because otherwise, why would you be releasing a 10-year-old book from her? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so maybe it is just like a little warm-up for the full Jenny Haval epic that's going to come out like next year. Hopefully. We'll, we'll see. But uh, it, it's definitely something I'm going to end up reading because, uh, yeah, she's made an impression with this one. So, yeah, I, I, I give the nod, the yep. nod to Jenny Haval's uh, Paradise Rot. So, uh, yeah, it's on Verso. Go to a bookshop, uh, independent bookshop, and pick it up. And Verso are pretty good um, with ebooks as well. They do a lot of sales, so it's probably going to come up in sale pretty soon. So maybe wait for that one. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's damn good. So let's do some music. So I've already mentioned there's a bunch of quite bigger bands coming out with, or at least respected bands like Psy coming out with stuff this week. So I wanted to kind of uh, rep a much smaller band who are still doing interesting stuff. They're called uh, Sarparust. They're from New York uh, City, Manhattan to be precise. They have a total of two songs I can find. Uh, both from this year. Peace is in our evolution or your, 
is in your evolution or our bayonets and the red council uh, which is one i'm going to play right now the free piece uh, kind of post black metal like an atmospheric black metal really that this particular song kind of reminds me of it kind of does what death heaven do a lot which is play some awesome black metal then do some um quite awesome post-rock as well and um but unlike death heaven these guys are very political the the last words of this song is a woman's place is in the revolution your place is by her side so i think jenny haval and verso books would would be into these guys oh a quick note about red council um Mm -hmm. um it opens with a brief monologue from someone named Animea Quash, who was a First Nations uh, activist who was martyred for her political activism. And this is specific a song specifically about not just revolution, but also um, like uh, indigenous, uh, the role of the indigenous. Hmm. Yeah, which I, I wish I could cover on this um, show a lot more, which is more fiction. There, I mean, there is fiction coming out about it. But um, having lived in Canada and been exposed to that for the first time, and um, yeah, it's it's very interesting and very very sad. Yes. Uh, so um, yeah, if if anyone out there knows about new stuff coming out in that in that kind of world, I mean it's it's a you know, the, it's a whole continent, so there's a lot to cover, but it doesn't get covered very much. Then uh, definitely uh, point me towards it. Uh, there's a lot of good indigenous bands um play music uh yeah. Um, yeah uh someone someone on uh twitter who goes by the twitter handle heckhammer a wonderful person by the way <laughs> does a lot to promote um indigenous metal uh very frequently and just brings it up constantly kim kelly also does a fantastic mm, job yeah too. yeah if you search for um her uh, if you search kim kelly or grim kim's uh, at Grim Kim's Twitter for Indigenous Metal, then you'll find a big thread, and that's got a ton of bands. Uh, I think yeah. I may have picked up Sarprast from her. She may have, I probably, she probably did tweet about this. Um, so, yeah, hails to her for these guys. So, uh, so yeah, this is the Red Council by uh, Sarprast. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. And um, keep an eye on them, because if they keep up this um, level of quality with these two songs that they've released, then you know, we could be seeing more of them in the future. So, Saprast. We are proud of being born Indian. We are tired of watching our people die of injustice in this country. We pledge our lives not to tolerate that abuse anymore. And if we are killed in the struggle, we will die with pride knowing that our children are that much closer to victory.
So that was uh, Sarprast with the Red Council. Uh, do check them out. Keep them, keep them a tab open on them. Um, so we wanted to keep the the Scandinavian theme going, because um, you probably know, dear listener, knowing nothing about you, you've probably read or seen um, something in the Millennium Trilogy by Stieg Larsson. That's the the Lisbeth Salander books about a uh, crimes and fascism in Sweden, um, starring a sexy hacker hacker girl who's been played by uh, Numira Pace, Rooney Mara, and now Claire Foy in a new um, film adaptation of a book that Stieg Larsson didn't write because he died before any of these books came out, before he even knew they were going to be a giant international phenomenon selling 80 million books across the world and being read by people such as me several times uh, i've also watched all of the films even though Same. i'm yeah uh, even the swedish ones the swedish ones i i um i like more than the uh well actually no i take that back the one english language one that trent reznor scored is fucking phenomenal but it is uh, good, yeah it's um it kind of it didn't do as well as it really should have um yeah and it was it was damn good it was david fincher um daniel craig played um michael blomquist who's um the kind of roughly steak glass and parallel character although he did name and was inspired by a guy named uh hakan blomquist who wrote an article, The Man Behind the Dragon Tattoo in Jacobin, which I'm going to be leaning heavily on here. And um, Rooney Mara played Elizabeth Slander. It was it was really well done. It suited David Finch's kind of foibles. And Trent Reznor did it. it and it was, um, it was significant that Daniel Craig was in there because it's... Elizabeth uh, Slander has been kind of, after uh, Steve Larson's death, has been promoted as the alternative female james bond they're they're very very consciously doing that the um the title sequence for uh the girl with the dragon tattoo was the best james bond title sequence that's ever been made and it wasn't in a james bond film uh if you look at the uh, trailer for the new one uh yeah it's it's very obvious that they're aiming for a bond thing and also doing some kind of like me too adjacent feminism which would be would be good. Uh, it would be very good if it didn't seem so um, brass. Yeah, very of the moment. Um, in the trailer, she uh, breaks into some like guy's house, uh, some rich guy who's been beaten up prostitutes, and saves his wife who's was more beaten up by him. Uh, tases him in the balls while he's hanging upside down. Uh, it, it's very like Yas Queen. Uh, tase that guy in the balls go off it's yeah it seems it seems crass and um but Steve larson had some real uh, bona fides when it came to not just feminism but activism in general yeah he was he was, he was incredibly active uh in socialist movements in mm. in sweden yeah and okay here's an awesome thing that i found out um because i've been researching um elizabeth slander slander style so um, Stieg Larsson was in a um, a socialist, um, the 
Communist Workers League of Sweden. Now, they, they are part of the Fourth International alongside uh, what's now called RED in Norway. Now, RED's youth league, Rod Ungdom, uh, had a member who was um, quite uh, influential in the metal world. Uh, it was Euronymous from Mayhem. He was a communist. Oh. Yeah. Did not know, yeah. I, I knew that about him from... I didn't know how active he was. He was in the uh, the youth wing of the... Like a major left-wing party in uh, Norway. And so, yeah, Stieg Larsson and Euronymous are kind of six degrees of separation away from each other polit- uh, politically. Both that, being parts of allied parties. Uh, that's not terribly shocking in a certain way if you, if you read... Uh... I, to be fair, I believe everyone has read at least one of the Millennium uh, series, uh, which are, despite, I hate saying that, despite being very big novels um, and crime novels, which both often get derided, they're, they're remarkably well written. Like the, hmm. And we're going to the, be coming the, back to the, the writing quality in a second, because that's interesting too. Let's go, yeah. Yeah, go on. There, there, there's, uh, especially given the... Um, yeah, there, there's a history with the writing of the Millennium series and how much of it was Stieg's. Um, but, uh, yeah, there, they, um, there, there's been sort of a, a, a renaissance of, uh, Scandinavian crime writing, uh, writing really tight, uh, contemporary noir stories that lean away from Stieg very, uh, very deliberately um, especially within the opening of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, leans as far away from the uh, misogynistic violence of noir as he can to make it more, um, to give it a more feminist bent of giving Elizabeth more uh, more agency and having her specifically seeking to punish people who uh, carry out violence against women. The, uh, the Swedish title for Girl of the Dragon Tattoo was would literally translate to Men Who Hate Women. Hmm. Um, so it's the the notion of a uh, a feminist undercurrent to all of the work is very, very deliberate, at least from Stieg Larsson's work. Hmm. Um, which is unfortunate when you look at how Lisbeth Salander also gets pitched sometimes as like, sexy alt girl. And it's like, <laughs> that... I, yeah. uh, <laughs> They they either play it up in they play it up in the films, in the um, in the uh, just looking for all the promotional stuff. Uh, Rooney Mara was like, it was like she was in a butcher shop window. She was just like often topless and with Daniel Craig draped around her some way, and yeah, she was it was like a Suicide Girls editorial for a lot of it. And I know films got to do that, but. Um, yeah, it wasn't. The films didn't do that particularly well. The, the Swedish ones did. They weren't particularly lurid. Um, and who knows what the new one will do. But um, so, yeah, he's he also um, Stieg Larsson trained women in uh, Eritrea to use mortars in their liberation struggle. So holy shit, that's badass. Because. <laughs> yeah. uh, People in Sweden have to do national service in the military. He learned to use grenades and mortars. So he went to um, an African republic in order to train a women's uh, terrorist cell to blow up people up. So, I think, yeah, that was pretty badass. 
that's a real one there yeah he's he's yeah he's he's doing it he's i rate this praxis 10 out of 10 um but yeah he's um so he also found it was a journalist and founded a a magazine called expo which was um inspired by uh, searchlight which is the big uk anti-fascist magazine uh, he also wrote for searchlight and expo was pretty tiny but it his work as a researcher was so good that um the extreme right in sweden really got a boner for this guy they they did not like him at all uh he um shops that sold expo were vandalized there was threats he had to there was a guy outside his house with a gun um who steve glass noticed and called the police on um and was found yeah he had like a suitcase with a machine gun in it because he was gonna come into steve glass's apartment and kill him uh, yeah he he was he was really doing it and um he was still working at expo at the time he died and expo never made much money at all um, it was an investigative journalism project, and that doesn't make much money, even like in, for the big New York Times level. It's um, it's a lot of work, and you just get a story out of it at the end. It's not a money spinner. Uh, his wife, um, Eva Gabrielson, who was an architect, still is. Uh, she supported him a lot, and the dragon tattoo of the girl with books were kind of written almost cynically at a time when. Like Landon said, the Swedish uh, Scandi crime thing was getting big because of like Joe Nesbo and people like that. So he wanted to cash in. He was a really fast writer because he drank insane amounts of black coffee. And he pumped out these three books. And uh, after writing two, he started selling them. He wrote the third one. He had written most of the fourth Um which hasn't ever been published. It's, it was on his laptop, which he was carrying when he had a heart attack and died. Um, apparently, Ava Gabrielson still has that original manuscript. Maybe. She's been very cagey about revealing that. And um, after his death, the books got massive. Um, it was some of the best-selling uh, book trilogies of all time. Uh, 80 million copies, like I said. And... Then there were obviously films. There was the Swedish and American films are still ongoing. Uh, and then, but in the background, while he was blown up, was the uh, case of his will and his estate, which was now worth millions. So he had written a will back in 1977 before he went to uh, Eritrea uh, because, you know, he was going to the cent Central Africa and running around with gorillas. Uh, gorillas not gorillas um and would have probably been killed so he wrote a will that said all his money went to the communist party um again king uh but that will was never notarized so it and it was from 1977 so it the courts took one look at it and decided no um but so his money largely ended up with his brother who he never really spoke to and his dad who was kind of not really in his life too much his partner Ava Gabelson uh, was with him 32 years 
they lived together, but they never got married because Sweden has a insane, stupid, pointless law where if two people get married, their address has to be registered in like a public depository of people, married people's addresses. So if they got married, all these fascists who wanted to kill Stieg Larsson would have been able to go and, into a library and look through the book of married people and find his address. And not just his address, but also Eva Gabrielson's address. Yeah, because they had the same address, because they lived together as basically man and wife for 32 years. So It's a similar law to in, that um, in Japan, where in order to... There are family registries, and uh, so there's certain laws that require... So when you get married, you have to be erased from one film family registry and added to another family registry and some feminist groups have had issues with that because typically the reading of the law is the woman has to be erased from her family and added to the man's family which obviously is problematic in certain ways um it also doesn't fit cultural climates of like what if we're making a new family and not joining um so yeah it's it's a similar kind of law that dates from from similar uh, periods where you'd want to have a, a compendium mostly for like tax reasons or census reasons, but that we have more than adequate enough ways to move past in hmm. 2018. Yeah. Um, I'm not even sure that the law is still in effect, but it was um, when he died. Yeah. So they were never able to get married, even though they obviously would have. But um, And in a, uh, this, a Spiegel article, which I'm reading here, it kind of suggests that they were too bohemian to get married. I think that's just the Spiegel's um, very German um, take on things. I think they they were quite um, they were very aware of their opsec. Yeah, they had to be. Yeah, people with machine guns were outside their house. So uh, the whole um, case of what is to happen with Steve Larson's um, not only his money but his legacy. And the continuing girl with um, franchise. Um, that is a major thing in Sweden. It's kind of like it's kind of like the OJ trial in America. It's like it's on the, a debate between the two parties involved, Eva Gabrielson and Stieg Larsson's brother, was like on national TV, like a presidential debate. Uh, it must be boring as fuck in Sweden. But, um, yeah, and there are t there are two sides to this debate. Uh, the f the primary primarily female Ava camp, with its own website supportava.com, and the primarily male Larson camp, uh, mogleden.com. And you know, just from an outsider's perspective, what really needs to happen here is someone needs to say to these guys, get in the Ava. Yeah. Uh, Otherwise, we'll make Ray do it again. That's just obvious. It's very clear that if they have a heart, they they know what happened last time Ray was in the Ava. Yeah. So it needs a strong authority figure to come in and say, Shinji, pilot the Ava. Get in the robot, Shinji. Yeah. So, um, so the majority of Stieg Larsson's legacy has been handled by his brother and father. Um, Eva Gabrielson has been offered um, quite a bit of money and the rights to the Millennium books, but she doesn't want 
that. She want well, she wants more control over what Steve Larson wanted his books to be, because um, she has said that it, his Steve Larson's politics have been largely erased out of the Millennium books, in Hornet's Nest and the Girl Who Played with Fire, the third and fifth, uh, fourth and fifth books. I know um, those are the second and third. I don't. I don't know. Like, yeah, uh, fire. Oh, yeah, Hornet's Nest. Yeah, uh, it was Spider's Web and Eye for an Eye. Uh, are spider, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those, it, his politics are completely gone. Yeah, um, the the new film that's coming out is based on. Uh, I think Spider's Web. Yeah, the girl who, and um, that's got a uh, Lakeith Stanfield in it, who I love. Have, have you seen Atlanta? I have. It's the best damn show on TV, and Lakeith really? Stanfield is amazing in it. And he's in um, Sorry to Bother You as well. But he's in this for some reason. And uh, Claire Foy plays Elizabeth Slander. Um, she's most famous for playing the Queen in The the the, the Crown, which I don't watch. Yeah, um, fuck that. Because <laughs> I can't imagine anything more boring. But um, yeah, it and... It, uh, some Swedish actor I don't know plays uh, Mikael Blomqvist because, um, yeah, apparently Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara don't want to come back to this. And David Fincher isn't directing it and it's gone middle into poor reviews all around the board and has kind of landed with a fud. It, it, so the, the story behind the film um, is, it, you can kind of piece this together from hearing it. There was a lot of rumbling that um, said, Obviously, in in the 2000s, you don't sign up for a film without having options on that contract. It's just no one wants to leave a billion dollars waiting on the table, um, especially post-Avatar and post-Marvel uh, post Cinematic Universe. So they had that, um, but given the reception of Girl the Dragon Tattoo, uh, commercially, not critically, critics loved it. It was, it was a successful film in that way. Um they were like, oh, we're not sure about Fincher. You know, he gave kind of maybe too much of an artsy vibe for what we wanted. We want to really dig into like, you know, these were made, these books made a lot of money. So let's lean into making a lot of money. And uh, my understanding of it was that Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara basically said like, our showing up for these is contingent on Fincher continuing to make it. And Fincher just wanted to go right into the girl who played with fire and basically wanted to make just a trilogy of films that were him pushing or uh, melding his cinematic vision with Steve Larson's literary vision, which worked pretty well aside from some obvious studio make Lisbeth sexier um, thoughts than Girl the Dragon Tattoo. And the studio wasn't having any of it. And things got a little funky and it became easier for them to leap straight to uh, the newer books which have also a totally different vibe to them. So using that as an opportunity to, like, soft reboot, but still... Which definitely left a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths for pretty obvious reason. Because yeah, it's I mean, like... These books have fans, you know? People, are, they read them for a reason, and they like yeah. them. I, the books themselves, are, they're very effective thrillers. Like, um, yeah. Just like I plowed through um, Paradise Rotten afternoon, I these are thick. These are four or five hundred page books. I read them in a day, and I got ADD up the ass. I got I can't concentrate on anything, but I 
plowed through these things. They're, they've they've got their their bad points. They've got some weird stylistic ticks. The, but, um, the and... first one is definitely the best, and that ties oh, yeah. into a little bit with. So there's been a little bit of a controversy in terms of how much of Steve Larson's writing made it into, especially the English versions of the book, and not just mm. in terms of translation, but so he'd um, he'd published the first two. Uh, in Swedish before he died, and the third one, I think, was the first one that got published after he died, at least in Sweden. I don't remember exactly that, but, like, uh, Eva Gabrielson was very big on, like, the text of... The thrust of writing a crime novel was based on him seeing the Scandinavian crime world sort of blow up and at first being really cynical about it. And in later years, he would be... Literally, I think two years later, because he died shortly after writing these, um, was much less cynical because he sort of got got involved in it. It's like, oh no, these people are actually really sincere about what they're doing. Um, writes the first one, and a lot of them were uh, collaboratively, like the form was decided by him looking at Scandinavian crime as selling really well, but the content of it was formed from his political activism and also the political activism and thoughts of his wife. Hmm. Um, and then just having communal discussions about stuff. She's mentioned that there's a lot of things that she had brought up to him that have shown up in books. There's a lot of research she did um, architecturally that showed up in, like, mutated form in the books. And The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, like the first one, shows that, that balance really well. Like, it balances between stuff that he must have picked up from doing uh, investigative journalism. There's the fact that uh, the main character is a journalist and the uh, other character is a computer hacker that feels like a a sexified version of his own marriage and relationship, but giving agency to both characters. And So there's a lot of positive um, discussion about the very first book, which also balanced being a crime novel with being a detective novel, which are... There's a lot of overlap, but they aren't exactly the same, in that there is a lot of gumshoe detective work in Girl mm. with the Dragon Tattoo. It's yeah, not just sexy archives, gun and um, they do that really well in the film. They make that, yeah. the, like, going through uh, photographs to find people's faces very interesting in the film. And so it's like, for for pulp readers, which, again, there's, there's nothing wrong with this, the, the crime novel and, like, having you know, police tension tends to be tends to be the bigger draw. And for the more literary end of um, those types of novels, the more detective-oriented end of pouring over research and following threads and running into red herrings and collating stuff tends to be the more... It's like navigating a labyrinth. It's one of the reasons why Umberto Eco just straight ripped the genre form for Name of the Rose and just put it someplace way more literary uh, in order to pitch it to people who normally would turn their nose up at it. Um, The issue came up more with... As as his esteem rose, and the girl who played with fire and the girl who kicked the hornet's nest, there started to be some like controversy over like rewrites or like invisible touch-ups. Um, but if, it, if you check them tonally and structurally against the girl, the dragon tattoo, they they feel different in sort of a a, a noticeable but unnameable way. Far less different than the books that are at least credited to uh, David uh, Lagerkrantz, who 
to be fair, is doing a fine job. He just clearly was hired to write sequels to a best-selling series, not to continue Steve Larson's literary vision. And I don't think he has any pretensions that that's what his job is. Um, but yeah, there, there'd been, uh, and then especially with certain English touch-ups, the, um, the English translations do better to unify the novels with a singular aesthetic, a singular, um, uh, naming schema, uh, which, which is an important thing, uh, certainly. Um, but there also had been some slight, concern of uh, stripping sort of the bare cold prose of the girl the dragon tattoo and gradually leaning it more into being like pulpy by the end and pulpy in a way that felt disruptive to what the story was rather than being you know uh, at least nodding to the genre form that it was pulling from so there was even a little bit of hot water before they started continuing them and having this open, like, horrible court war that's still ongoing uh, in Sweden. Um, and then there was a whiff of, uh, I remember from, from the literary world, there was a whiff of, like, oh, there may have been another um, uh, another manuscript, but, you know, the it isn't finished. Laptop, yeah. Did they did they want to finish it? And pretty much everyone who got through all three books were like, just leave it alone. Also, everyone who'd read The Pale King, the um, David Foster Wallace book, mm. was like, this can be fascinating if it's published in the correct fashion. Because, like, um, the a- incomplete version of The Owl in Daylight by Philip K. Dick has also had published versions. But they're always bracketed with, we deliberately didn't finish it, we just felt, you know... We need to just demonstrate this. Speaking and, of um, Philip K. Dick, uh, Eva Gabrielson wrote the um, translation of *The Man in the High Castle* to Swedish. Yeah, there's okay. um, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, and you can you can see some of Philip K. Dick, who uh, gets sometimes overlooked uh, in favor of his psychedelia and uh, novels of ecstasis and all kinds of wonderful things that are actually quite fascinating and, and profound from and that have been big, very influential to the fact that at the guts of most of his novels, they're detective novels, hmm. um, and they're built around mysteries. And a big thing in literary mysteries, which is adjacent to Philip K. Dick and to this, it's more adjacent to Philip K. Dick than to Steve Larson, is that literary mysteries aren't bothered if the gut uh, takeaway is a mystery that can't be solved that the attempt to solve it and peering at an unsolvable thing can sometimes be uh, fulfilling in a literary sense where a pulp novel requires an ending of a certain kind. Um, Steve dabbles with that a little bit, but then, you know, he he always wraps it up. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. um, So, yeah, the Steve Larson thing is still ongoing, and doesn't seem to be an end in sight that's going to be satisfactory to the Ava and um, Larsen factions in Sweden. Um, And it's to the detriment of the film, which is coming out, which is probably going to do pretty badly um, because, you know, this is not what Stieg Larsen represents. It's not his politics in it. It's It's not even his story. And, um, yeah, it's, once again, money has fucked up something good in literature. 
and kind of made the world a little bit more crap. So thanks again, money, for doing that. Just, yeah, great, great job. Fucker. <laughs> on absolutely everything. Everything is so good because capitalism. Just nice job, man. Brilliant. It, so, you know, it innovates. We <laughs> oh, innovated... Yeah. Uh, we innovated a new film that's bad now. That's innovation. The old one was good, and we innovated badness. Yeah. That's and innovation, baby. Stieg Larsson was forced to innovate these stories because he didn't have enough money to fight fascism. So, yeah. Again, and then just his lifestyle that he was forced into innovated him into the grave. It did, yeah. So, um, yeah, just... Again, capitalism just really kicking ass. Just bravo, capitalism. Bravo. Caps off. Yeah. So let's uh, let's round out the, the show with a new track by Envy. So Envy, are, uh, they're from Japan. They are very influential on the whole black gaze thing, uh, even though they're really, uh, I don't know what you call them, like an emotional... Would you even emo like, call a screamo? Yeah, yeah. Like that... in the in the in the proper connotation, yeah. uh, not like not mall screamo or whatever. Not even to knock that stuff. It's just these guys are. If you look up scrams, it's them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're they're very um, influential in that scene. They've they've Death Heaven are a big uh, big fans of these guys. They've even brought them on tour, and um, they've got a EP. It's just come out called. Uh, Alnair in August. It's two tracks: Dawn and Dawn and Gaze, and Marginalized Fred. We're going to play uh, Marginalized Fred, and it's kind of pitched as a connecting Fred between their older stuff and their newer stuff, and um, especially on the especially on these uh, the track we're going to play, which is kind of their heavier thrashier stuff and the first track on this album uh, is they're more melodic more p- kind of post-rocky stuff and um they're gonna have a new full album out in 2019 and who knows where they'll go with that one uh, they're probably gonna keep going with um the kind of yeah more personal and more melodic stuff that they started on atheist's cornea back in 2015 excellent record by the way yeah they're they're all really excellent records they're one of these bands that just keeps pumping out great great records and not particularly um uh prolific but they are yeah they every one of their records uh is in its own way, really, really incredible stuff. So do check them out. Uh, go into their back catalogue a bit. I think it's all on Bandcamp. Or you can just buy this one. It's only $2. It's a, a dollar a good song. So we can just listen to it on Bandcamp. I'm sure they're fine with that. If you don't have a ton of money, then, then do it that way. So this is going to be Marginalized Fred from Envy. And we're going to be back next week where, fingers crossed, we're going to be talking to... Uh, the guys behind a comic book which I picked up and was really into called Crowded and that's going to be getting a film adaptation pretty soon um, so we're coming in on ground floor before it gets big 
or gets ruined by Hollywood. You um, never know. Yeah, you never know with Hollywood. They took all of Alan Moore's stuff and made it shit, so who knows what they could do with uh, this. Although they made, for some reason, they made like a very minor Warren Ellis film, Red, into a surprisingly decent Bruce Willis action movie. The sequel's shit, but the yeah. first one, first one's pretty solid. It's stupid and fun and in the right yeah. ways. He shoots an RPG with a gun, yeah, and then it blows up and kills a guy. It's tight. <laughs> he gets out of the car and shoots people and gets back in the car, and all the time the car is spinning. It's yeah, Red is a good film. Uh, every film made of Alan Moore's stuff is terrible. Yeah, because uh, he he is angered God. Yeah, he's his magic his... is too powerful. Yeah, he's um, pledged himself to his imaginary snake god that he invented, and the real god, uh, praise be upon him, is very angry with him, him and his beard, which is better than God's. And uh, yeah, he's cursed him with terrible film adaptations from now until forever. And think, and Watchmen's. Yeah, and isn't... Uh... When that thing's done, I'm going to talk about it. And, oh, baby, do I have thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> and aren't Amazon doing uh, a reboot of Watchmen? They are. Yeah. Their tagline uh... is, nothing ever really ends. Yeah. Which is like... Which is the equivalent of making their tagline, fuck you, Alan. <laughs> yeah. But that's fine, because Alan Moore lives in Northumbria and just... Northampton, sorry, and... His last book, Jerusalem, was incredible. Uh, and Jenny Havel likes it. Yeah. And she talks I, uh, about in an interview here, like, liking Promethea Lost Girls and Jerusalem. So, I Promethea think she... is far and away the best book of his that no one has read. It's oh, yeah. fucking incredible. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's like a guide to magic that's also a superhero story set in his own invented superhero world. It's incredible. Uh, from Hell is a fucking remarkable book that is, again, way fucking better than the movie. Like, it's oh, yeah. it's, it's comical how different they are. Yeah, and uh, we should talk about Jerusalem sometime, because that book... Yeah. I should finish it, maybe. It's a thousand pages, so... Uh, really? Yeah. Yeah, but it's incredible. But, uh, yeah, so uh, read Alan Moore, and um, don't read the new Steve Larson books, because they're, they're sellouts, but read Alan Moore instead. Yeah. And, and Jane Haval and listen to Envy. 